who we are and where our hope comes from. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. As we go back to the passage we looked at last week, and rather than preaching on five verses, I want to just deal with one word today out of those uh, verses. Uh, we talked about it last week a little bit, and I had several people asking questions about it, so I thought, well, it's a great opportunity to go back and do it again and uh, talk about it a little more and hopefully clarify it because it is such an important word uh, that if we fail to miss it, I think we fail to miss some of the greatness of the Christian life. It's found in verse 17, and I'll read the whole verse, and then we'll talk about that one word, propitiation. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, I will tell you that propitiation is a theological word. It is a doctrinal word. And a lot of times when we think about that, we kind of shy away from it because, you know, we, don't, we think doctrine, theology is, is too heady and too heavy and, and we just really would rather not think about those kind of things as most Christians in our country and in our world today. I was amazed yesterday when I got home yesterday afternoon and checked the mail in the mailbox, I got my final issue of Christianity Today. I only buy that when school kids come around selling magazines and it's on there so to help them and to get it cheaper than you can get it from the Christianity Today. I buy it Well, my subscription ran out yesterday, but I got this one. I was so glad I did because the cover story was entitled The Mind Under Grace. And, and the subtitle of that was Why Theology is a, an Essential Nutrient for Spiritual Growth. And I liked, if nothing else on there, I liked that. Theology is an essential nutrient for spiritual growth. It may very well be part of the reason that American Christianity is so weak and so immature is that we have so shied away from anything theological, anything beyond just what feels good, that we've moved ourselves into an area where we've not fed and feasted upon that which will help us to grow. He went on in this article, and I'm not going to read the whole article to you, but there's one paragraph that I was just captivated by. The, the subtitle or the, the section title was Default Buddhist. I thought that was interesting. And this is what he, he quoted a sociologist, Steve Bruce. He said, sociologist Steve Bruce has observed that American spirituality is, quote, Buddhist by default. That's interesting. That Americans, even Christians, are obsessed with what goes on inside with spiritual experience. We don't usually welcome any external testing of our thoughts and actions. Subjectivity, this is very important, subjectivity takes the ethical and doctrinal teeth out of every religion. Doctrine helps us to think. That's an important thought. That's an important concept. That we as Christians ought to be thinking Christians, not just feeling Christians. We ought not be default Buddhist. Just kind of sitting around all the time saying, oh, how do I feel? And, and how does this make me feel? And do I, do I feel happy today? Do I feel sad today? Do I, I feel with Jesus today? Or do I feel not with Jesus? You know, how do I feel? There needs to be some truth and some teeth in our faith. And that only comes from studying doctrine. It only comes from studying and understanding words like propitiation. You see, propitiation is that which gives us 
I think, a richer and fuller understanding of exactly who or what Christ has done for you and me. Without propitiation, without understanding that, I don't think we understand the depth of the seriousness that brought us to our need for Christ, nor do we understand the broadness and the vastness and the greatness of what Christ has done for us, what God has done for us in Christ in giving his Son on the cross. Propitiation is that word that some translations translate uh, atoning sacrifice. Uh, I think if you have an NIV, it will say the Christ made for us an atoning sacrifice. That's not erroneous. That's not an error. He did make an atoning sacrifice, but atoning sacrifice is part of propitiation, but it's not all of propitiation. If you have other translations, they might interpret that word or translate that ter term expiation. And the word expiation is an important term also. It also is a part of propitiation. Expiation just simply means he exited our sins. He took our sins away. That in the cross there is an expiation of my sin and your sin. He takes our sin and takes them away from us. Expiation is important, but expiation does not cover the richness nor the depth of propitiation. Because propitiation deals with something that if it were not dealt with, we could not have salvation, we could not have eternal life, and we could not have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ even in our day. Paul, uh, uh, the writer of Hebrews here made clear, I'm going to talk about Paul in a minute with this word, but the writer of Hebrews made it clear here that he became this, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. I had Todd read the passage out of Leviticus today that talked about what the priesthood did. The priesthood took the offerings, the sin offerings, the bird offerings, uh, the grain offerings, and they offered them on the altar before God that the sins of the people might be covered in, his, in the blood of the sacrifice in a temporal sort of way and in a, if you will, a prophetic sort of way, pointing forward to what Christ will one day do on the cross. It is prophetically speaking of that which is yet to come. But there is that blood covering, there is that sprinkling of the blood of the sacrifice that symbolizes and speaks of the blood that Jesus Christ will one day uh, shed on our behalf. Now I realize that there are a lot of places today that you won't hear words like propitiation. There are a lot of places today you won't hear words like sin preached. I mean, sin is sort of a dirty word. I remember seeing not long ago Joel Osteen on Larry King Live, and, and Joel said, oh, when Larry said, well, you don't talk much about sin, do you? And he said, oh, no, no, we'd like to be more positive than that. We don't like to deal with sin. We don't like to talk about sin. Well, without talking about sin and understanding sinfulness, there is no salvation. I remember years ago, Robert Shuler writing a book called A New Reformation, and it was a call to reformation of moving away from talking about sin and talking about self-esteem. That we don't need to be called sinners. We don't need to face our sinfulness. We just need to have our self-esteem built up. I contend to you that self-esteem is not the solution. Self-esteem is the problem. The problem in the Garden of Eden was Adam and Eve had great self-esteem. So much so that they wanted to be like God. Man, we're as good as him. We can be as powerful as him. We can be as knowledgeable as him. So words like sin and propitiation and even redemption is sometimes passed over and not looked at by many people today, and that's a tragedy. This word propitiation is only used four times in the New Testament, and I mentioned that last week, but I mentioned it wrongly. It's mentioned once in Romans, not twice, once in Hebrews, and twice in 1 John, the little epistle of John. Just got John and Paul mixed up a little bit last week. 
I want, to, I want to look this morning a little more fully at this word by looking at what Paul said in Romans chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Romans chapter 3, beginning verse 21. <clears throat> Paul is interested here in, in expounding justification by faith alone. Being a debtor to grace alone, as we just sang about. In chapter 1 of Romans, Paul introduces himself and he introduces the gospel. He makes that great statement in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to those who believe, the Jew first and then to the Greek or to, then to the Gentiles. So in Romans 1, he introduces himself and he introduces the gospel. In, in chapters, chapter 118 through 320, down to where we are, going to look at in just a minute, Paul uh, makes, deals with this whole concept of God's wrath. And in those verses, he talks about how man has turned away from God, how man has gone after his own desires, and God has given him over to a depraved mind. And he says, because of that, the wrath of God is revealed against all sin, against all who sin, Jew and Gentile alike. Doesn't matter. There's no distinction there. And the wrath of God is a urgently important thing to understand. Now again, that's one of those things that we don't hear talked about a lot in the, in the evangelical pulpits today. The wrath of God. Oh, no, that, that takes us back to images of Jonathan Edwards and sinners in the hands of an angry God and, and, and takes us back to the Puritans and takes us back to the Old Testament that we have a God who is wrathful, a God who is angry towards sin. But the scripture is very clear in the New Testament that God is, is, has wrath and God hates sin and his wrath is poured out towards sin. We want to make God today a God of love. Oh, and God is love. Don't, don't, I'm not denying that. But we want to make God only love. And when we make God only love, we make God a sentimental God. We make God a, a sort of God of our own creation. And we say, we just want him to be all love, no wrath, no anger, no, no judgment, just the God of love. And if you look at modern day Christianity across this globe, but especially in this country, you'll see what the God, this, this God of love only doctrine has done to the church. We're accepting everything. We're, we're excusing everything. And, and we come to the point and say, well, you know, maybe, maybe God is not really going to ever condemn anyone to hell because, you know, quite honestly, God's a God of love. God loves everybody. And so God would never do that to anybody, contrary to what God's word says. God's word is very clear about what the results of rejecting him is, and that's eternal damnation. That's what we call hell, what the scripture calls hell. So as we look at these verses that Paul uses here in Romans chapter 3, uh, you knew I'd have to get back to Romans at some point on this. Uh, in Romans chapter 3, verses 21, I want you to look for three things. I want you to see what our situation is. I want you to see how we can be saved. And I want you to see why God saved us, what he did to bring that about. Listen to what Paul said in these first few verses. But now apart from the law, Paul's already made it clear that no one can be saved by the law in 3, 19, and 20. Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets pointed to the gospel, pointed to the righteousness of God in the gospel. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ, in Jesus Christ, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Stop there. <clears throat> I want you to see three things that Paul deals with here in this passage, and all three of them are important. Put that up on the screen if you would for me right quick. I want you to see three things that he deals with, because these are important to understand. Is it coming? It's on its way. There it is. There are three things here. So I, I, I call this the salvation triangle. I'm sure I got this from somebody years ago, but it's an important thing to understand. You notice there he talks about redeemed. He talks about justification. And he talks about propitiation. Now, if you can imagine in this idea of the Christian life, this triangle being made, where you have God the Father, Jesus Christ, and you and me, the Christian. We are, we are together in the body of Christ. And, and this is explaining a little bit of what has happened in that. If you look first, you want to have an error here. Boy, you can barely see that, can you? But there's an error there below in talking about what Jesus Christ has done to the Christian. And, and in a word, that what he has done, there it is, is redemption. Jesus Christ has redeemed the believer from sin and from slavery. This morning you talked about the, the Exodus motif in Sunday school, and you talked about how important that is all through Scripture. The redemption of, of believers out of sin and out of slavery to sin is a part of the, the Exodus motif, and it's his redemptive work in us. We don't redeem Jesus, so the arrow points toward the Christian from Jesus. We can't redeem ourselves. We can't obey the law enough. That's what Paul made clear in Romans 3, 19 and 20. Obeying the law will not bring about redemption. So in, Christ, in, in the gospel, we have Jesus Christ redeeming the believer. So redemption is from Jesus to the Christian. A second thing that we have here, you really can't see that line because that was just supposed to show a line. There we go. The line from God the Father to the Christian. Now that one is pointing downward. Because the word we use there is the word justified or justification. Hit the button back there. Hit the space bar. This thing works half the time, half the time it doesn't. It's justification. The Christian cannot justify himself. The Christian cannot declare himself sinless. And we certainly don't justify God. He needs no justification. We can't do anything for him. So the arrow points downward from God the Father to justification. Now so far what we understand is this is Jesus and God doing something in our lives, doing something for us to affect this thing we call salvation or this thing we call a relationship to God. But there's a third era, and if you'll put the space bar there, it goes up from Jesus to God the Father. It doesn't go toward the Christian. And what we have in that era, what we have in that line, is propitiation. What we're talking about in this passage. We have propitiation. That is, Jesus Christ has propitiated for our sins, but he didn't propitiate toward us. He propitiated toward God. Now, Why? Because we understand that every single person that's ever lived on the face of the earth is under the wrath of God. 
God's wrath is directed toward them because we are sinners. We are sinners by birth. And, and that always gets me in trouble because people think I'm saying something when I say that that I'm not saying. Uh, you know, I, we are sinners from birth. David said he was conceived in iniquity. He was a sinner from his conception. So you can either go back past birth. We are sinners because we are the seed of Adam. We are sinners because we, are, we inherit that from our federal head, our father Adam. And that is a part of our life from the very beginning. Now, I don't know that uh, these little babies we have around here, like, uh, that they understand sin at, at, at six, seven months of age. They don't. But they are sinners nonetheless. You just test them. They, you keep their food away from them a little bit, or you let them sit there in a dirty diaper for a little while, and they will scream bloody murder. They want what they want when they want it. That's the essence of selfishness, which is the essence of sin. But they have that. We sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. And because of that sin, the wrath of God is being poured out toward that. God hates that in every one of us. You need to know that. If you're here and not a Christian this morning, you need to know that's, that wrath is being poured out towards you right now. And you may say, well, I don't feel the wrath. No, you may not right now, but you will. You say, well, I don't, I don't understand what you mean by wrath. I mean, he, is, he so hates sin that he must destroy it. He must crush it. He must burn it up. The only way that we get out from under that wrath is by the propitiatory work of Jesus Christ. We get out from that wrath because God covers us and Jesus Christ turns his wrath away because we are now covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You see what Paul is saying here in Romans? You understand what he's saying in that? He says, he says you are, God has made a public display of this propitiation through the blood of Christ or through, by his blood through faith. He's demonstrating his righteousness. He could not be a righteous God and say, and wink at our sin. He could not be a righteous God and say, oh, well, it's no big deal. To do that would be entering into our unrighteousness, be entering into our sin, would be entering into our condition. And God cannot do that and will not do that. By his very nature, he is opposed to that. And so God, in the work of Christ on the cross, did a multitude of things. Now, why does that affect our worship? It affects our worship because it gives us something to really glory in God about. It gives us something to say, Father, I deserve your wrath and you gave me grace. You gave me propitiation. You allowed your son to propitiate, to take my wrath upon himself at the cross and die there in my place that I might not have to experience the wrath of God. If you're here in a Christian this morning, you'll never experience the wrath of God. If you, are, if you have faith in Jesus Christ and you are covered in his righteousness, you will never experience it because he has covered us with his righteousness and averted God's wrath, turned God's wrath away from all who believe. That's an important thing. Why did he do it? Well, I think what John said in 1 John 4, you don't have to turn there, just, just listen if you like. But in 1 John 4, and uh, well, I marked it with a bookmarker and I didn't, mark the actual thing. But he says basically that God loves us. We know that God loves us and because he loves us, he has made propitiation for our sins. And, and we rejoice in that. We glory in that. I think it's 410, right? Yes. In this is love, 
not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The propitiatory work of Christ flows out of the love of God for His people. It flows out of the love of God for those who are in Him. It's His love. We didn't love Him. As a matter of fact, as sinners, we hated Him. We were rebels against Him. We rejected Him. And you may say, well, I never knowingly did that. I never knowingly, it doesn't matter, knowingly or unknowingly. By virtue of your own life, you, you were living for yourself. And that's a rejection of God. We didn't love Him, but He loved us. He loved us and He sent Jesus Christ to be our, our sin bearer. He sent Jesus Christ to cover us by, by redemption, to cover us with His righteousness. God, by the death of Christ, justified us because His righteousness covers, up, covers us. He declares us righteous. He declares us, He imputes righteousness to our account. We who are still struggling with sin, even on this side of heaven. And then finally, God loved us so much that he turned his wrath away because he put his wrath upon his son. That ought to drive you to worship. That ought to drive you to just fall on your face before him. The passage that Todd read earlier out of Leviticus 9, after Aaron has made all the sacrifices and made all of the, the, the offerings unto God, and he goes and declares it before the people that the sin offering has been given and the sins have been forgiven, what does it say they did? They fell on their faces. They fell on their faces. And theirs was only temporal. Had to be done again next year had to be done over and over and over again. It was, a, it was a ritual that that they could not neglect and could not avoid. And yet when they heard those words of Aaron the priest saying, your sins are forgiven because of this sacrifice, they rejoiced in the Lord and they fell on their faces and they worshipped him over and over and over. And Aaron was just a human priest. The writer of Hebrews says, that because he became a man like us, he did that in order that he might be made in our likeness like his brethren so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Wow. Now here's Aaron. Aaron says, I want you to know the bull, the goat, everything's been offered. The blood has been spread upon the altar. We have done a wave offering to the Lord with the thigh and, and other parts of the goat. And God has accepted that sacrifice and the sins of the people are forgiven. And this human priest declares that on the basis of that right, they're forgiven. And they worship. They are so grateful to God. They fall down and worship the living God. Now fast forward several thousand years. We have a, a Savior, Jesus Christ, who comes in the flesh. He is God in the flesh. He lives a perfect life, obeys the law to the letter. Something you haven't done, something I haven't done, something we could never do. He obeys it without sin. He fulfills the law. He fulfills the prophets. And then he is sacrificed on a cross. He is placed there as, a, as the reality of that which was pictured early 
in the, in the work on the altar by Aaron. He hangs there, as we sang about this morning, to become, to be the very Lamb of God. John said that. John the Baptist, when he came out of the water, behold the Lamb of God. Now we have this one who is the Lamb of God hanging on the cross, the perfect and complete and final sacrifice. He redeems us. God justifies us. Jesus propitiates the wrath. He takes the wrath upon himself. He hangs there, absorbing everything you and I deserved. And then he declares to all who believe, he declares, the very Son of God declares, your sins are forgiven. Not just for this year. Not just until we can come and do this again. Not just symbolically, but in reality. There's no more wrath toward you who believe. There's, there's no more paying the penalty for you who believe. But Jesus Christ has borne that and taken that upon himself. Our situation was tragic. Our situation was, in a word, horrible. We were helpless. And without Christ, we were hopeless. I mean, we were in a situation where we could do nothing for ourselves. That was our situation. And then God sends his son, and how can we be saved? Well, it's quite simple. We can be saved, the scripture says, through faith in him. We can only be saved by God, only by Christ, and only through faith. You'll never be able to do it on your own. You'll never be able to do enough good works. Now, we are created for good works. We are who are in Christ. When God does his work in our heart and life, it changes us to where we want to be obedient and we want to do what he has called us to do. No doubt about that. But good works can never do it. Faith can. Faith does. We're saved only by God and by his sending his son. And only by Christ who was offered up on our behalf. And only through faith. That, that is just the reality of of what has taken place in the cross. We have to realize that. You know, one of the reasons, and, and I, I get in hot water with this too, but you'll understand me. One of the reasons I, I so resist early, early professions of faith and baptisms by children is because they don't grasp the depth of their sin. They love Jesus, and, and that's good. We want to teach them to love Jesus. We want to teach them to, to know who Christ is. But when they come at a young age and they don't understand what sin is, perhaps even, and some don't, and they can't understand the whole concept of wrath. Remember, many mom, I tried to talk to one child one time about the wrath of God, and the mother pulled him out of the room and said, don't talk to my son about stuff like that. That'll scare him. He'll have nightmares tonight. But it's reality. And apart from that reality, there's no salvation. And I'm afraid that many of us have made these, these trite little, you know, I ask Jesus into my heart kind of things, and I prayed a sinner's prayer, and, and yet for a moment I admitted I'm a sinner because somebody told me to, but I never really thought about me as a sinner. I'm a good person. Everybody else is sinners. They've never grasped the depth 
of what salvation is all about. They've never grasped the depth of what Jesus rescued you and me out of. Back to what you studied in Sunday school this morning. I hope you were there. In studying the whole Exodus motif, it goes all through the scripture. The children of Israel were in horrible slavery. They were in, in terrible slavery in Egypt. And God sent Moses, a prototype of Christ, and sent Moses in to deliver them out and take them to the land that he promised to them, to the land that he had promised to their forefathers. And they wandered a while and they struggled a while, but ultimately they finally got there. Now they didn't do well when they got there because then they went back into slavery to sin again because they disobeyed God. And all through the judges and all through the prophets, you have this cycle of the, of the children of Israel getting in slavery or getting in exile and God raising up a prophet in the type of Christ and bringing them out of that and bringing them back to Jerusalem and back to, to, to uh, Palestine. And you have that cycle over and over. The, the motif of the Exodus is clear. If you, if you, underst if you really understand the gospel of Mark, you see the Exodus all through there in talking about Jesus coming. Because Jesus has come to lead us out of slavery. Jesus has come to break down the barrier that stands between you and relationship with the living God. Jesus has come to redeem you. God has declared you just. And Jesus has propitiated for your sin. He's turned the wrath away. Listen, I don't fear the wrath of God anymore because I'm not under the wrath of God anymore. And you know what? That's something to fall down and worship about. I don't, I don't fear God's wrath because God has propitiated that in my life. And if you're here in a believer this morning, he has propitiated that in your life. You are in him. And, and God's wrath has been dealt with by your sin bearer, by Jesus Christ, on the cross. So see, I think the writer in Christianity today is exactly right. I think, I think we have, in many ways in our churches, become default Buddhist. We're all about feelings. We're all about how it feels. And we never understand the reason and all that God has done because we're scared of doctrine. We're scared of theology. We're scared of truth in many ways. Paul also says in, in Romans why he saved us. And, and he says there in verses 25 and 26 that he did this to demonstrate his righteousness. He did this to bring glory to his own name. He did this that he might be exalted. He did this so that we might see the glory of God. I love the way Martin Luther put it in his commentary on Romans. He said, The very fact that Christ suffered for us and through his suffering became a propitiation for us proves that we are by nature unrighteous and that we for whom he became a propitiation must obtain our righteousness solely from God. Now that forgiveness for our sins has been secured by Christ's atonement by the fact that God forgives our sins only through Christ's propitiation and also justifies us by faith, he shows us how necessary his righteousness is for all of us. Our righteousness 
is no good. His righteousness is necessary for each one of us. Or Horatio Bonar, I mean, I quoted these in the grace notes. You may have already read them. I hope you have. But Horatio Bonar, who wrote in the 1800s, in his book, The Cross of the Lord Jesus, said the cross is the place of exhausted penalty and magnified law. That which covers the sinner entirely and shields him from wrath is finished there. That covering, that propitiatory covering whose power and virtue are unchangeable throughout all ages and underneath which we are all secure from wrath was wrought out there on the cross. The propitiation of the cross is the substance of the glad tidings that we bring. In other words, that is the substance of the worship that we bring before God. It ought to deepen our worship. It ought to deepen our commitment. It ought to deepen our walk with Christ. Paul said, listen, God displayed it publicly on the cross. We continue to display it publicly through the preaching of the cross. We take no shame in the cross of Christ. We are not ashamed of the cross of Christ because it sits at the heart of the gospel. And you take away the cross and you take away understanding of sin and you take away the wrath of God and you have diluted at best polluted at worst the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. We worship him who is worthy of our worship because of all he's done on our behalf. Let's pray together. Father, as we bow in your presence, I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will give us a greater appreciation and a greater understanding of just what propitiation means, that your wrath has been turned away because of the cross of Christ. And for that, we are grateful, Lord. Father, I pray this day that you will burn that home in men and women's lives. There, there may be people here this morning, Lord, that don't know you, and, and they may be shocked to find out that Christians don't believe man is all good, but that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Father, I pray that you would show them their need for the Savior today by the work of your Holy Spirit in their life. Father, speak to us. Do your work now in your way. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.